Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're pleased to have with us today two outstanding attorneys from very prestigious firms. Joining us are Russ Melton from the firm of Foley and Mansfield in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Joe Gerber from Cozen O'Connor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. For the past 15 years, Russ has led Foley and Mansfield's catastrophic loss practice group. Russ has also worked as a qualified nuclear engineer with the United States Navy, Westinghouse, and General Electric. Joe Gerber has 37 years of experience with Cozen O'Connor. He presently chairs the firm's client relations activities and co-chairs the firm's crisis response and management practice. Joining me in the studio today is Brendan Noonan of our communications team. Recently, chemical plant explosions in Kansas City made national news. Several explosions there forced a broad evacuation that affected local residents and the area school districts. Today's focus is on managing the catastrophic law scene and the law firm's crucial role in that process. Today, I'll turn the first question over to Brendan Noonan. Okay, uh, Russ, uh, your firm does a lot with large fire scenes and chemical exposure risks, and Foley and Mansfield has closely monitored this particular situation. If you worked specifically on this case, how soon would your firm be involved? Well, that's an excellent question. The problem is I have to drop back a little bit to address it. There's several factors that are involved other than the incident itself. There's the duration, of course, of the fire or the release, but then there's also who's your client. Initially, the client assignment and then that follows by the uh, assigned scope of work. So looking at this, the client, if it's the owner-operator, usually receive notice quite rapidly that there's an incident. The owner-operator is self-insured. That would allow you to respond pretty much just a few hours after the emergency response teams have gone in, and that would be the local teams to either fight the fire or secure the release. If, however, it's a carrier, There may be some slight delay, either reporting from the owner or reporting from the broker or the agent before you have information sufficiently for them to assign the job to the firm to go in and commence the initial investigation or crisis management. It may be that the insurer would be involved in another matter, depending upon, I'll have to say, the area, the type of insurance, the type of coverage that they're providing. Regardless, though, probably a few hours if it's owner-operator to a half a day if it's broker. And if the carrier is identified that, indeed, it is their risk, they do have the paper, then we'll be there the following morning. And, Joe, I'll follow up with a question for you. How important is this early intervention to manage scenes? Early intervention is absolutely critical. And if you think about a fire scene, an explosion scene, or any large catastrophic loss, obviously it's critically important to understand the condition of the post-loss, the physical evidence, the physical condition of the scene. At the same time, that evidence gives you the opportunity to bring in your photographers and your videographers so that you can preserve exactly how the scene looked immediately following the release or the extinguishment of the flames or the collapse or whatever the calamity might be. At that point, while the scene is fresh, you then start with the various investigators. Probably the first on the scene will be the public entities, the fire departments and the police departments. And then, of course, as Russ mentioned, the insurers are critically interested, and they will have people there in the early going. And then, to the extent that you're pursuing claims against third parties or responsible parties, you might want to invite them to the scene before the scene is altered 
So the critical stage here is in those first hours and days when you do everything you can to preserve the scene as is. And there's an enormous pressure and temptation to start bulldozing and clearing the debris, but that must be resisted as the various experts and consultants and public entities come onto the scene. Uh, at the same time, you want to make certain that you have early access to the various witnesses, and those would include the eyewitnesses to the event, and then, of course, the first responding fire department or police department folks who were first at the scene. And you want to get to those witnesses as early as possible while their memories are fresh and before they're involved in a lot of other activities. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, Russ, uh, although you were not specifically involved in the Kansas City situation, how closely do you work with the law firms and insurance companies involved, even if you're not directly assigned to the case? I think I'll expand that question slightly because when an incident like this occurs, there's a small group of entities across the nation that work on a catastrophic loss. The phone call will come in perhaps from emergency responder, let's say, air monitoring. As Joe started out, yes, you've got a variety of government entities, which could be everything from EPA, CSB, ATF, FBI, and it continues on to the state side also, as well as the local agencies. At this time, everyone is talking back and forth, uh, trying to identify what happened. And as a consequence, my phone will ring and say, Russ, uh, check CNN. There's an incident, say, for example, in North Carolina. We start watching the phone will ring from someone in Oklahoma, indicating that they have information on the loss. Part of the problem is, is at the very beginning, no one really knows what happened. A processing facility, a power generation plant, they worked thousands and thousands of hours without an incident. And then all of a sudden the incident occurs. Well, they have emergency action plans, but they do not have plans usually in place for conducting an investigation or, for that matter, coordinating the 40 or 50 people that will show up on site seeking access. As a consequence, we talk back and forth not only with agencies, but also with the emergency responders. And then rapidly right behind the responders comes what Joe was talking about, which would be the remediation teams that want to go in, tear down, tear apart, and put everything back in place to try to minimize the business interruption or the duration of the incident. Now, Russ, you yourself have engineering experience. In a situation like this, a chemical explosion or a fire disaster, tell us a little bit about the process for securing additional experts to the scene. Well, I've uh, been on both sides of the table. When I was in manufacturing, I first started out in design engineering, then production engineering, and then went into division management, then corporate management. I've had fires and explosions at my sites, so that's one area to discuss. Secondly, as far as the experts, attorneys usually move directly into choice of an expert as an expert witness and looking at how it's going to be presented, the evidence that is, at trial. We start looking at the experts that we knew that we need to bring in because although you may have MSDSs, a material safety data sheet, to identify the chemicals that were shipped in, that really doesn't help you too awfully much when you've had an incident where there's been co-mingling, there's been fire, there's been explosion. The chemicals that you have there are not necessarily the chemicals that are listed on the MSDS and we consider all sites extremely dangerous. So the first expert I want to get on the ground would be air monitoring. Now this is depending upon the scope of my involvement, what is my assignment. Usually it's to the crisis management, of which a subpart would be the investigation. Regardless, you're going to have evacuations on most of these incidents. 
some as a result of plumes, some as a result of odor. You want to have hard data on what's occurring downwind, where the plume settles in, or where you have the water runoff or the stormwater runoff, or it might be the firefighting water, to make a determination of the degree of contamination on site and off site. So you have to look at your experts not only as far as for litigation, but as far as actually working and getting the site back under control. So the best thing to do is to have what I call a preferred vendor list, a list of experts in the different categories that you have gone out, met with, worked with, identified the credentials or assisted them in getting the credentials necessary to support the endeavor to minimize the duration and the damage for the incident. Joe, uh, what lines of insurance are most impacted by the handling of the scene? There's almost every line is impacted. When you're dealing with a catastrophic loss at a factory, a chemical plant, or a refinery, you start off with your property lines of business, which insure the buildings, uh, the contents of the buildings, and, of course, your boilers, your machinery, and your equipment. So all of your property lines are potentially impacted. Then, of course, if there's been some form of release, a leak, a spill, you're worried about your pollution coverages, and that would include the air pollution coverages, water and ground pollution coverages. As Russ mentioned, business interruption jumps to the forefront, and all the business interruption coverages, including extra expense, come into focus. You're immediately worried about your period of suspension. How long will the plant be down or part of the plant be down? You need to make some very early decisions about whether we're talking about a partial interruption or a complete interruption at that location. And then also inside the business interruption extra expense considerations, can you make up this production at another facility, at another location, another factory? Your casualty coverages are potentially triggered because frequently there are losses or claims by third parties, and they take the typical varieties of both uh, personal injury and property damage. On lines of coverage, your workers' compensation is no doubt triggered because you probably have some injuries to your own workers, and sadly, your life insurance coverages may also be triggered if there's been a loss of life, and certainly a disability package would be triggered to the extent that any of your workers will sustain either a short-term or a long-term disability. So in short, then, I would suggest to you that almost every line of coverage is triggered by a catastrophic event. So, Russ, would you discuss this topic with insurance clients ahead of time so that they know what to do when a catastrophe happens? Uh, this is difficult. Uh, I've tried the last 10 years to approach potential clients by doing seminars across the United States in which we have training on, for example, dust explosions, vapor release, static electricity ignition, electrical ignition, etc., in hopes that I can prepare them for this type of an incident. What I liked, as Joe was identifying all the different insurance lines that may be impacted as a result of a catastrophic loss, I want you to drop back a little bit because starting even with property, what you're going to have is you'll have an adjuster that wants to come in with a team of three to four people. Property's also going to have their origin and cause investigator, and that would probably be one or two, perhaps two. As you go through this listing, uh, you also see the causation engineers, which might be electrical, mechanical, chemical, etc. So just talking about property, we probably have five to eight people that would want to go in and take a look at the site, which is going to be closed, at least for a while, by the public entities, and hopefully they won't be disturbing the scene, because the best evidence is the scene itself. This brings up the point of the convergence today between science 
and law. It's reached a point, if you could see me, I'm running my hand. I at once ran parallel to another, and now we have the convergence of law and science, whether it be Dalbur or it be NFPA 921. Everyone has to have an opportunity to inspect and examine the site and the potential evidence in a pristine condition. As a consequence, the public entities, as well as the interested parties, we'll call them IPs, that would be your carriers. And then as Joe started to talk about, if you identify potential responsible parties, the PRPs, they need to be put on notice so they can bring their teams in. We're now up to probably 50 to 60 people that want access to a restricted or a controlled area, an exclusionary zone that is extremely dangerous. In all probability, they may not have the right training, they do not have the right credentials, and they definitely do not have the appropriate personal protective equipment. So crisis management is much more than just showing up to make sure that the evidence is not disturbed. And speaking of evidence, one of the primary concerns is once you've identified and reached a protocol and removal of evidence, the problem remains this evidence is contaminated. So how are you going to remove it? How are you going to store it? And what type of facility do you need to do the destructive testing on it or analysis at a later date? All these are elements that I try to teach at the courses to potential clients to ensure that when an incident does occur, it is not a sudden jolt of reality. They've had some information to lead them to put plans together so they have the appropriate experts available. Okay, and Joe, we talked a little bit about the immediate responses. You also do a lot of subrogation work. In comparison, how deliberate is that process? It's extraordinarily deliberate. I mean, it's really an extension of what we've been discussing this morning already. You start at the scene with all of those immediate activities during the first 24 and 48 hours, and then you just continue that process as the subrogation claim takes shape and matures. So you begin, of course, as we discussed, with cordoning off the area, protecting the battery limits of the facility, preserving the scene until all interested parties have been through it. We've mentioned many of those. You move to the photography and videography that we mentioned, the preservation of the evidence, and then you start working very intensely with your experts, who include both the generalists, the specific experts, the chemists, the metallurgists, the electrical, the HVAC, your technical consultants. And then you start gathering documents as the process matures. You need to gather all of the computer tapes and disks and records for the facility at the time the accident took place. You need to gather service records, instruction manuals, and maintenance guides, and so forth. All of those documents need to be identified and obtained very early on and as the process moves on. You also have to be in touch then later with the public authorities as they reach their conclusions in terms of cause and origin. And at the same time, because you're dealing with subrogation and potential third-party liability, you need to focus on what theories you will be pursuing and the elements of those theories. For example, if it's a negligence theory, what are the various duties of care and to whom are they owed? And what were the breaches of those duties that gave rise to the loss? And then, of course, the damage aspect. As the claim matures, the damages come into focus, both the property damage and the business interruption damage. If you're pursuing a warranty cause of action, of course you need the contracts, and you need to identify where the breaches of those contracts occurred and the damages that flowed, and product liability is much the same way. And one of the key issues I would suggest to you is that there not be a rush to judgment. Uh, very early on in these matters, 
you will hear and see people on TV and radio very early on, with a matter of hours, and they'll they'll have some theory. And for those of us that do this day in and day out, you've really got to resist the temptation to rush to judgment and be far more deliberate and gather as much of the evidence and as much of the expertise as you can so that you can make an intelligent decision as to exactly what happened and what the ramifications are in terms of potential subrogation or third-party liability. So, Joe, uh, how important is the relationship or the, the trust factor between the insurance company and the hired counsel? Well, I, I would suggest to you that it's paramount. At Cozen O'Connor, we ha- have relationships that go back literally decades, more than the three decades that I've been here. And uh, as a result, you're involved in dozens and hundreds and even thousands of claims throughout the years. And the trust relationship comes into focus because the insurance companies are anxious to be relying on people that they know and that they have worked with previously and had success with. And one reason that the carriers choose an outside firm, like my firm or Russ's firm, is that they know we have the skills and the expertise that we've been involved in the area and that it's a specialty and a concentration for us. And it's not something that we get in and out of like a fad, but something that we've specialized in for many, many years. So I I would say that the trust factor is critically important. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I want to thank uh, Russ Melton from Foley and Mansfield and Joe Gerber from Cozen O'Connor. Appreciate your taking the time to uh, speak with us this morning. And special thanks to Brendan Noonan for joining us in the studio today and, of course, to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google and Yahoo's podcast directories. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this word. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 